some people seem to have a lot of courage, and others of us don't feel like we quite uh, have, have that same kind of uh, whatever it takes to, to uh, uh, show the same kind of courage. Uh, some of you will know Maya Angelou. Uh, she knows, uh, in my mind, a lot about courage, uh, and particularly the courage to live up to her potential. She has received an amazing uh, 50 honorary degrees. I don't even, I don't even know how that's possible, but uh, she, is, she must have a, an entire room just dedicated to uh, uh, the, the certificates that she has received. Uh, also, if, if I were ever to sit down and uh, write a, a biography, probably maybe a, a two-panel pamphlet would be kind of um, about, about appropriate for my life. She has written an amazing seven autobiographies. Uh, she has f- had a full life, full of challenges, full of uh, taking on things that uh, many, many people wouldn't uh, have the courage to take on. And so she's been known for her courage. And she was interviewed about her courage in uh, the Harvard uh, Business Review, and she said, she said this about it. She said, I would say my mother encouraged me to develop courage. And she taught me by being courageous herself. Years after leaving her and I think becoming courageous, I realized that one isn't born with courage, one develops it. As you develop it by doing small, courageous things in the same way that you wouldn't set out to pick up a 100-pound bag of rice. If that was one's aim, the person would be advised first to pick up a 5-pound bag, then a 10-pound, and then a 20-pound, and so forth, until one builds up enough muscle to actually pick up 100 pounds. That's the same way with courage. She says, you develop courage by doing courageous things, small things, but things that cost you something, something, some mental and, I suppose, spiritual exertion. I think that Maya Angelou is, is correct, that we aren't born with a courage gene. There, there's nothing that we just start off life with that gives us some supernatural and amazing ability to make courageous decisions. We all need to develop it. And I think it comes as we do what she says, have those, those confrontations with some of the fears that would keep us from courage and make those small steps that lead to uh, greater, uh, greater strength. Today we're talking about courage, but we're not talking about so much the, uh, the courage to, to pick up spiders or ask for a promotion or some of the things that maybe you feel, I, I wish I were more courageous to be able to do that. We're talking specifically about spiritual courage. And in this series we're starting today, we're talking about the courage to lead, the courage to step into greater influence, to step into greater responsibility spiritually. And so I want to ask you as we get started, do you feel that you are building muscles of spiritual courage? If you were to look at your life right now spiritually, would you say, I think I've got a maybe 75-pound bag of spiritual courage that I'm, I've worked up to being able to carry? Or you got, have you got more like a two-and-a-half-pound uh, dumbbell of uh, spiritual courage that's even that feels hard to, uh, to pick up some days. Where are you at with this thing called spiritual courage? 
Are you taking steps? Are you moving forward? Do you see your muscles in that area growing? And do you see yourself taking steps of, uh, uh, of progress? When I became, uh, first became a Christian, there were many, many fears that I started with. I, I still remember the, the very first time I was uh, in, a, in a small group and prayed out loud for the first time. Uh, I remember uh, the fears that I had uh, going out, uh, just sharing my faith with, with other people. I, I remember fears that I had uh, confessing my sins before someone, asking people, asking other Christians for help. Uh, I remember in ministry, probably one of my first fears, what came when they made an announcement at the front of the church for people to help with a toddler ministry. And unfortunately, Jennifer, I think, heard that, mess, heard, heard that appeal and, and turned to me and said, well, surely we could do that. And uh, I found myself as a uh, 20-something youngest child, uh, no idea what to do with children, finding myself in the toddler room, and I, I, would, I, would, get, um, I, I would feel my panic as we got in, and I was sh- making sure that Jennifer didn't go very far and uh, that I had, some, uh, I had a backup when I didn't know what to, uh, what to do with myself and what to do with the, uh, the precious children that I was entrusted with and, in, in that ministry. Along the way, God has continued to confront my fears, as I know that God continues to confront your fears. Uh, And it is in those steps of obedience and steps where God can develop spiritual courage in our lives as we keep uh, stepping and responding to them. And so today I'd like to look at how he does that, how he develops spiritual courage in our lives, how he helps us to move forward, to build the muscles, and to step into greater areas of influence and responsibility as we uh, would trust him with them. To do that, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. And I'm going to be reading from verses 1 all the way down to verse 24. Judges 6, verses 1 to 24. Uh, Sorry, actually, I'm I'm going to start in 11 to 24. Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And were all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. 
So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. Pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Bezrites. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing this passage teaches me is really by way of contrast. It shows us what courage doesn't look like at the beginning of this passage. Because when we first meet Gideon, he doesn't teach us about courage. He teaches us, teaches us about its opposite, and that's self-pity. We see from him that indulging in your weakness will paralyze you, that self-pity can overcome you and keep you from stepping out and responding to God and experiencing his work in building courage in your life. Indulging in your weakness paralyzes you. Now, when the scene opens in verse 11, Gideon Gideon is wallowing in self-pity. It says that he's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. This was an unusual scene. This is not where you would normally uh, bring your wheat harvest. It's a wine press, after all. If you wanted to prepare the the wheat for the wheat harvest, what you would do is take it to a a large raised floor. You would... uh, beat it till you got rid of the straw, and then you would throw the, uh, the wheat and the chaff into the air, and the, the chaff was very light, so the wind would blow it away, the wheat would fall down, and you had your harvest. That's how you normally would do it. The problem was that for the last seven years, the Midianites would come every time there was a harvest, and they would attack them. They would attack them, and as they were threshing out the wheat, they would steal the harvest, and the Israelites were left uh, without, without food, without harvest, and in dire straits as a result. You might be tempted at this point to feel sorry for Gideon. Be a terrible situation to find himself. He's, he's hiding. He's hanging out, in the, hanging out behind a tree because he wants cover from the Midianites. He's doing his, the work that you would normally do on this raised platform out in the open where there was lots of wind. He's doing it now in the cover of a wine press where it would be very difficult to get the job done. It would be like uh, barbecuing with a Bic lighter. It, 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 you, you might be able to, to get, make some progress, but it would be slow. It would be tedious. You might be tempted to feel sorry for Gideon except for the fact that in verse 7, earlier in, our, in, uh, in the passage above our reading, when the people had cried out to God for relief, he had sent them a prophet, and he had told them what to do. He had made it very clear to them that what they were experiencing with having, 
having the, the Midianites continue to attack them was because they had forfeited his protection in serving idols. So what they were really called to do was to repent of that, to make things right with God, to come back to him and so enjoy his protection again. Gideon does what many of us do when we find ourselves in those situations. We wallow in the self-pity. Instead of repenting, we hide. Instead of dealing with the root problem, we look for superficial fixes. And we experience what he did. So Gideon indulges in his weakness and it paralyzes him. He doesn't have the courage to confront his sin. But Gideon's self-pity isn't just in his attitude towards his circumstances. It's also in his attitude towards God. He feels a a self-pity before him. Here, the angel of the Lord has appeared to him. He he has had a visitation from from a a messenger from God, God about to do something exciting and powerful uh, in his his life. And the angel greets him, offers him assurance that he doesn't deserve. He he encourages Gideon with the promise uh, that, that, that the Lord is with him and that there is uh, something something going to happen in his life, and yet Gideon responds to those promises and that visitation with, again, self-pity. Gideon responds the same way we do when we hear God's promises of assurance often. We say, as he did, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? If God's so great, then why didn't this happen the way I wanted it? Why aren't my circumstances unfolding the way I asked him? He talks about the deliverance from Egypt like uh, someone who had cynically come through Sunday school and said, yeah, I've heard all those stories, but I don't see God doing that today. It's someone that wants constant reassurance. God's past faithfulness, instead of being an encouragement to, to step out and act on what God has done in the past, how God has proven himself in the past, and act on that with courage, instead he... Wallows in, uh, wallows in his in his circumstances. He rejects what God has done in the past, and he says, "What have you done for me lately?" Thankfully, God doesn't give up on Gideon, and God won't give up on us either. In verse fourteen, God essentially commissions him as Israel's deliverer and promises to help him. Then, in verse fifteen, he responds the same way that people often do when they're asked to teach a Sunday school class, when they're asked to lead a new ministry. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? But behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. He starts to list all of the excuses why God must have it wrong, why he's, he can't be the right person, that God must have made some kind of mistake. He doesn't know how to do it. He's too weak. He's too inexperienced. He doesn't have the, 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 the kinds of qualifications that someone would need to have for a task like this. And in so doing, he resists God's invitation. The, he resists being a part of the, the, the salvation that God is seeking to bring to the Israelites. I, I love how John Ortberg uh, describes Gideon here. He says, he found a way of viewing himself that would rationalize his passivity. 
He found a way of viewing himself that would justify his saying no to God's great call on his life, to the great adventure to which he was born. And he found a way of viewing himself that rationalized his self-centered existence. When we don't have the courage to confront our sin, we construct excuses and justifications to, to describe why we're in the situation that we're in right now. Self-pity is all about I can't. There's no courage for I can, or even I'll try, or it's possible. It's not going to happen. I can't, I won't, and, uh, uh, and, and it stays there. And so we tell ourselves, I, I couldn't possibly be a greeter. I don't have the spiritual gift of shaking hands. We, we tell ourselves that I'm not mature enough to lead a ministry. I'm not experienced enough to, to uh, uh, lead a small group. I, I, I don't have enough knowledge to share my faith. And all of those things that we can't and we don't and we didn't, they become the basis and the justification for staying where we are with that two-pound bag of spiritual courage, and that's all we ever end up carrying. And what we see here is that's exactly where Gideon was, and God didn't want to leave him there. Often we'd rather settle for the threshing floor, settle for threshing the wheat in the wine press because we don't have the spiritual courage uh, to, to respond because we feel the Midianites are too big for us. The, the enemy is too strong. The, the, the circumstances are too big. And so we live without dreams. We live without trying. We live without progress. We indulge in our weakness and it paralyzes us. So Gideon shows us the ugly side and the opposite side of courage. He shows us what self-pity is like and how it paralyzes us. And we see his life and we say, yeah, I've seen all of that. I know exactly what that's like. We recognize it in ourselves. But God invites him to faith, and we learn that acting on God's strength, in contrast, mobilizes us. God knows our tendency to wallow. He sees how fear grips our lives, and he doesn't want us to stay there. By faith, we can act in reliance on God's strength, and it mobilizes us to be a part of his plan and what he's seeking to do. Now, I mentioned already that the angel of the Lord had appeared to Gideon. It was a great privilege. It was a great wonder that God had worked in his life in that way. It was a kind of experience that we often long for when times are tough. We want God to come and speak to us. We want, when we're fi- finding ourselves at the end of our rope, we want God to come in. We want him to speak to us. We want him to lay out his plan to, to bring rescue. But we see with Gideon what we often do in Scripture. When God visits us, he often comes with an assignment. God visits us to commission us. He comes with a plan, but it's not a plan that we're just going to sit passively by in. He comes to us with a plan, and often we are an essential part of that plan. And that's why it's so hard to hear God when we don't have the courage to serve him. With our eyes and our ears closed to what he wants us to do, when he comes and and tries to speak to us, we're we're saying, God, I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to hear about your plan to make all of this right, but please don't mention anything about any new steps of courage and obedience that I would have to show to be a part of that plan. 
Like, could you just lay out a plan that I could kind of be a passive spectator in and enjoy watching uh, your amazing rescue, but not actually do anything myself? That's kind of the, the mindset. When I feel uh, God first began to speak into my life about what I was seeing uh, in, in, in Japan the first time I visited there, I would see the need of the people. I saw what was happening in the nation. I saw a desperate need for hope, and I was praying to God to do something about it. And at that very time, I felt God asking me to give my life to be a part of the solution. And it was like I, I wanted to hear anything other than that. I wanted to hear God say, yes, I'm going to do something, Paul, about, uh, about these people and their, their need for more churches, their need for more uh, opportunities to hear the good news of the gospel. I wanted to hear God say that. I just wasn't prepared to have him say that I would somehow be a part of it. I don't know how many of you check the settings and permissions on your phones and your computers. Where the, many people just, whatever, I don't, don't really think about it very much. But if you're someone who goes in and says, you know what, I'm, I will give you permission, you know, I'll give this app permission to do that. I'm not going to give it permission to do that, or I, I don't accept those permissions. If, if you're someone that does that, I, I felt at that point in my life with, with God as he was trying to speak to me about his uh, purposes for, for me in Japan, it was like I had given him a very narrow list of permissions. I, I had given him authority to do things in this area, make some little tweaks in my life, but please don't get involved in any of the big decisions. Please don't go near any of the things that would kind of mess with kind of my plans and my direction because that's not really what I'm interested in. And I realized that treating God as, uh, as someone who just gets to make a few tweaks in my life and gets to have a very uh, narrow uh, area of authority in my life was not to treat him like God. It was to treat him as less, less than that. Thankfully, though that's where we often start with God, he longs to change us. He doesn't want us to stay there. And God has the power to change us. He has the power to rewrite our destiny. And so you see that coming out in our passage today in verse 12. If you'd look there, you'd see the message that the angel delivers to Gideon. Watch what he says. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And you're thinking, I'm sorry, did I miss something in the passage here? Did I... Did, I, did Paul skip over something in the reading that showed me how, how mighty Gideon was and what valor he was displaying? No, he's hiding from the enemy at this point. He's um, slinking behind a, a terebinth tree, um, doing, doing his harvesting in a wine press because he doesn't want anyone to see him. This is not a mighty warrior. This is a sniveling wimp of, a, uh, of an individual, and I don't say that disparagingly of him because I would probably have taken up the same position behind him somewhere. But this was no mighty man of valor. This is, uh, this is the cowardly lion. It's not, the, uh, it's not the, the mighty warrior. And yet God del deliberately brings this message to him because he recognizes 
God says, I have the power to make you this kind of person. It's the same way when, when Jesus comes to Simon and he renames him Peter the Rock. He, he calls him the Rock, not because, wow, when, you, when Jesus first meets Peter, he says, wow, this is a rock. This guy is solid and stable. Wow, we can really put our trust in this guy. No, that was not why Jesus called, called, uh, changed his name to Peter the Rock. He did that because he knew that Jesus has the power to rewrite someone's destiny. He has the power to fundamentally change some of the areas of weakness in a person's life and transform them. That's what he does. And he can do the same with our lives, but that involves our faith. By faith, we cooperate with God in his work in rewriting the destiny. We're kind of thinking, I'm a two-pound bag of rice, spiritual courage person. That's, that's kind of the horizon of life that I see. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. You can, you can and you will, as you cooperate with me by faith, you will carry a hundred-pound bag of rice, spiritual courage, but it's going to involve some little decisions along the way where you need to trust me, where you take those steps as I ask you to respond to me. Now, we'd like a script for how God does that. We'd like a little bit of detail, and we get a hint of it already in verse 12, but it gets fleshed out a little more in verse 14. So I want to encourage you to look there with me. In verse 14, the angel says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Now, we're left wondering, what is this might of yours referring to? What, what on earth is God talking about? It says, this might, so we back up to the only other place in this passage where it, spoke, it, it talked about might, and we find ourselves in verse 12 where the wimp is called a mighty man. And we see that might is repeated in verse 12, verse 14. And there's something else that's repeated in both of those verses, and it is God's presence with him. The fact that God is on his side seems to be presented as the basis for his might. So verse 12 gives the fact that the Lord is with you is the basis of Gideon's might. Then in verse 14, he calls him to go in this might of yours, and at the end he adds do not I send you? Don't you recognize that I'm the one that's behind this mission? I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm sending you. This is my idea. And that is where your might is. That's where your power is. He's not calling him to go out in the strength of his good lucks and natural charm. That's not the appeal here. He's calling him to go out with the recognition that God is sending him. God is empowering him, that this is God's plan, God's idea, and so God will bring the effectiveness. So this morning, if you're carrying a five-pound bag of, of spiritual courage, then know that what is standing between you and that 10-pound bag of spiritual courage, the next step that God is calling you to make in your life, the thing that's standing between you is by faith, laying hold of the precious truth that God is with you, that he is enabling those, those uh, acts of courage that he calls you to do. 
Now, if you need courage to do some bungee jumping this summer, you're on your own. You, 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 you take care of that yourself. But if God is calling you to do something, if he is something and you are clear, this is his will. This is something that he wants believers to do. This is something that I think he wants me to do. I just don't have the courage to do it. The answer from God from this passage is he gives you that courage because he is with you. His presence will enable you. His presence will strengthen you. And his commission is all of the confidence you need to step out knowing that he will be with you. It's a faith here that Paul demonstrated when he said in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a faith that God asks of his servant Joshua in 1.9 when he said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's God's enabling presence that gives us the courage to do the things that we know he wants us to do, we just don't have the courage to do them ourselves. When I lay hold of the fact that God is with me, it gives me strength, it gives me courage. For many people, a fear of speaking in front of people. Huge, huge challenge. Anything involving speaking is, is, is a huge challenge. It, it requires courage from, uh, from people that often they say, I don't have that courage. I don't, I don't have what's needed to do that. Fear of speaking in front of other people keeps them from obeying God. It keeps them from praying in front of other people. As I mentioned, that was, that was one, of, one of my early challenges. Uh, it keeps people from confessing their faith in baptism. It keeps people from serving him in areas where they need to speak. Uh, it, keeps, it, it, it keeps people from many of these areas But again, it is God's presence that enables us to do things that in our own natural selves we wouldn't ordinarily have the confidence to do. I want you to see that in uh, in Jeremiah, in in the the, uh, life of of one of Israel's prophets, uh, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. He went on to become a famous speaking prophet, but he did not start out that way. He went on to show great courage, even as a speaker. He did not start off that way. Uh, God gave him the courage in Jeremiah chapter 1. Watch what it says. He says, Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Notice again in verse 8, it is God's presence that enables him. It is God with him that gives him the courage. It's that power to change us. He enables us to do things we could never do on our own. But we need to lay hold of that presence, that, that power. We do that by faith in in him and his promises. So, so far we've seen self-pity paralyzes us. Uh, We've seen that faith can then mobilize us. It can change us. But then how do we grow in that? How do we develop into uh, greater courage? And here we see that it's in the midst of worship that Gideon's heart is 
really changed, and it is an essential part of our lives as well. So finally, I want to consider the courage that comes from worshiping the God who speaks peace into our fear. If we don't know him and engage him in a relational way, we don't we don't ever deal with these things, these fears that are naturally holding us back. Courage comes from worshiping the God who speaks peace into our fear. Now, we said that Gideon has already been given some incredible promises. The angel of the Lord is sought to give Gideon courage for the task God calls him to. But like you and like me, Gideon's a tough sell. He doesn't roll over easily. He, uh, invol- he, he takes some... Um, uh, some, some convincing. And so in verse 17, with a mixture of doubt and fear, Gideon asks for a sign. This is not, a, this is not um, the way to do it, okay? I'm, I'm not encouraged. This is not something that we're holding up as, as a virtue in Gideon's life. He keeps asking God for signs. No, God has said it. We, we, we believe it, and then we do it. We, we act on what God has said, but Gideon is still struggling with his doubts, and so he asks for a sign. It's not clear exactly what kind of sign he's seeking, but he asks the angel to stay until he's prepared a meal. And he's thinking somehow, either between the cooking and the preparing and the serving, we'll figure out how to, how to make some sign take place. And he doesn't just go and heat up some leftovers. He first slaughters and uh, prepares a goat, and then he bakes some unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. Uh, anyone, anyone made some cakes from an ephah of flour recently? Uh, it's not a, not a measure we frequently use anymore, but this was an enormous amount of flour. This would have been some 40 pounds of flour that was used to prepare uh, these unleavened cakes of bread. So this would have been... Uh, this was a meal for a king, and, and it shows something of the reverence and respect that uh, Gideon felt towards this visitor. He brings out the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, and do you know what the angel asked him to do? He's, the angel said, because, I don't know, last, I don't know the last time you've been served a meal, but I kind of, you know, you might give thanks for the meal, and then you might eat it with uh, some, some delight and excitement. The angel of the Lord doesn't do that. He said, that, that meat there looks really nice. Put it on the rock. Um, then the, the broth, wow, you've made a really nice stew here. Pour that out over the meat and the unleavened cakes. And you're thinking, boy, this is, uh, this is a pretty rude way for a guest to respond to the meal that I prepared for him, but okay. Uh, it, again, perfectly good, perfectly good meal is being ruined here. 40 pounds of flour has been gone into these cakes at a time when, when harvest was scarce. You didn't have much opportunity to... Uh, I don't know when the next 40 pounds of, uh, of cakes were going to be uh, made or how many meals were going to be lost because this meal was going to be destroyed. But Gideon here for the first time does exactly what he's told. He, he listens to the angel. And as he does, God reveals himself in shock and awe. The angel touches the meat and the unleavened cakes with his staff and fire literally comes up from the rock, consumes everything. Then, if, if that was not a powerful enough show, the angel of the Lord vanishes. He, he, he disappears from before his eyes. This is like uh, Las Vegas quality uh, magic here, except it's not magic. 
God is showing Gideon, condescending to, to give him an incredible sign that would have stunned him. It does leave him stunned. And he realizes he's had a personal encounter with God. Gideon thinks, wow, that was, that was really what I was looking for, a personal encounter with God, except when he has that a personal encounter with God, now he's filled with more fear. He's terrified because he said, wow, this really was God. I've seen him face to face and, and now I'm going to die because I'm, whole, I'm unholy and he's holy. And he's overcome with fear. And if God's patient hadn't, patience hadn't been enough already, God comes to him and says, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. That so moved Gideon that he, to recognize that there is a God who is far more powerful than he ever recognized, far holier than anyone he had ever known before, and to recognize, despite his sin, that he could, be, uh, he could experience peace before him. He sets up an altar because he wants to continue to worship this God who is all-powerful and yet can have peace with sinners. He labels the altar simply, the Lord is peace. The Lord is shalom. And it would await the coming of Jesus before Gideon or anyone else would know just how a holy God can have peace with unholy people. The prophet Isaiah foretold his coming as the prince of peace. But we would wait till the New Testament would declare, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with him. He is God with us. He is the one who has the power to transform us, to, to overcome and cast out the fears that would, would stand between us and the courageous steps of faith and obedience that God calls us to. And so I want to ask you this morning, what's the weight of that bag of spiritual courage that you're holding right now? Is it, is it like a, a little two-pounder? Does it feel kind of heavy even just to lift up that? Or would you say, no, Paul, I, I have been making these steps and I'm up to about 40 pounds right now and I'm, I'm going to keep making those steps. By faith in him, I know he's with me and so he can help me to move forward. Spiritual com courage comes from knowing peace and the peace that comes through the Prince of Peace. It comes from worshiping the God who speaks peace into our fears. And it comes from trusting the God who is with us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call on you now to deliver us from our fears. Forgive us for giving you such a narrow set of permissions. Forgive us for not really being willing to listen to you in, in many areas that require us to act and take steps and move forward and serve. Help us not to wallow in self-pity. Thank you, Father, for the great promise that you are with us and help us to lay hold of that promise by faith. Help us to lay hold of Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Speak peace into our fears and show us the next step you want us to take. We want the courage that only you can give. So, Father, help us to move forward.
For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.